everyone. This is your host, Haley, and you are listening to Straight Talk with the Doc, a podcast on all topics addiction, mental health, and recovery. Our doctor is addiction medicine specialist, Dr. Bott. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Haley. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. So, Dr. Bott, your background makes you the perfect person to discuss today's topic with. Before we get into it, can you tell me a little bit about your background in adolescent psychiatry? Yeah, sure. Yeah, and I, and I appreciate us speaking about this at this time, especially because many kids around the country, right, are going back to school, and they're going back to school in the time of COVID-19. But um, yeah, over the many years, I, I am a trained child and adolescent psychiatrist, in addition to general adult psychiatry and addiction medicine. So, um, you know, for me, I, I, I always felt in order to understand proper adult psychiatric and mental health conditions, you have to know how we grew up. How did, what are the normal, abnormal um, evolutions that a human being has from birth until, you know, we pass? So I, I went and studied uh, child and adolescent psychiatry and actually worked as faculty in the Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, one of the top medical schools here in the country. So, um, yeah, I've had a lot of experience treating a variety of um, behavioral health, uh, addiction issues um, from very, very young children to, um, you know, uh, adolescents going on to 18 to 21 year olds. And um, it's a very interesting time in a human being's life. There's so much changing at that time. So a lot of vulnerabilities there. So um, yeah, this is going to be a good topic. Yes. And those vulnerabilities are, you know, that kind of ties into our topic today. We've all been impacted by the pandemic in different ways, some more than others. But, you know, we can't forget about the children who are growing up during this time. I'm sure a person's age during COVID is going to influence how they are affected by it. But let's talk about how the brain changes through adolescence. Dr. Bott, are there certain years that are like the most formative for a child mentally? Yeah, you know, children... We have distinct stages that we've identified cognitively. You know, when we're talking about brain development, uh, physiologically and emotionally, you know, there are distinct stages that occur. You know, up until about five, I think most of the brain is being developed at that time. So those, that's a huge impact that we, we have um, in terms of the environment, the nurturing, the, the, the experiences that they, that anyone experiences up until that age, um, it, it's very, very uh, important that a proper solid um, environment exists for one to grow up until about five years of age. Like I said, that's what the majority of the brain has already developed. But that does not stop or preclude us from having continual growth. Um, actually, the executive part of our brain in terms of the frontal lobe and the ability to rationalize and um, organize, plan. Um, that's continuing to evolve up until our early 20s. So, you know, when we ask, you know, what are those main years? I do believe depending on the insult, the injury, the time frame, you know, up until you're an adult, every part of your life, it, it's important and the proper, um, you know, environment has a tremendous influence um, or lack of 
the proper environment can have an influence on how healthy or unhealthy somebody's going to be. And what do you mean by the environment? Is that, you know, their home where they're being raised? Does that also mean what is going on in the world? Everything from, you know, your, your, the parenting, the love, the support, the, the ability to have all of their psychological and physical needs met, you know, in terms of socialization, education, availability of health care, physical fitness, nutrition, emotional, cognitive, you know, cultivation, all of these things, you know, contribute to our health and wellness. So um, it's important, you know, how that impacts um, us as we evolve. And it, and it impacts us at any age, really. But um, in terms of, you know, our first exposures to certain things are happening, of course, when we're younger. So, um, you know, that, that's a very important part of our life. So environment means basically everything around us, um, even to the time we what, what we first started eating to, you know, the first people we interact with. And especially in adolescence, um, environment has a, has a huge impact. And, uh, you know, we can talk about that as, as we go along. So I want to, yeah, I want to talk about that. Um, this environment that children are growing up in is an environment with COVID. You know, just all of, you know, the issues that COVID has caused, not just the illnesses, but the isolation, the lockdown, all of that. In what ways can COVID be frightening for a child? So, you know, when, when it comes to the understanding of COVID, it's, it's really age dependent. It's age dependent and it's also dependent on what's being told to us or what we are witnessing. So it, it really depends on, you know, the, not only your age, but who's around you because we, we resonate off of one another. So, um, you know, if you're growing up in a family who's got emotional parents or emotional caregivers, that can add to the, uh, you know, anxiety that a, a child might perceive. Um, on, on the flip side, if there's a, if, if there's somebody who's downplaying it or who is not taking it, um, you know, with any credibility, well, that can also minimize things and expose child, children to, to harm in, in a different way. So, you know, it really depends on, you know, how, how the environment is portraying that, um, that's that part or aspect of COVID at a particular time. But taking one step forward uh, is that, um, you know, if, if we if we lose a family member, I mean, this is ultimately destruction. You know, um, if they're not able to access food um, because the parents have lost their job, if they're unable to go to their medical appointments because, you know, they've lost their health insurance, you know, they're because of a loss of job or loss of finances. I mean, it's a huge trickle down effect. So all of those aspects to to um, our uh, psychological and physical health, at any point where any part of it is uh, compromised, you know that perception of COVID as the causative agent of it, um, you know, can be more or less frightening. You know, the, the the biggest impacts that we've seen though are are more the social interactions, the the uh, probably more time spent on the screen. And, 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 you know, the lack of structure from going to school in person. But, um, you know, the actual danger of the virus itself has been less appreciated amongst the, the children itself compared to those other psychological factors. But again, like I said in the outset, if, if people are dying around you, people have physically gotten sick, 
then the, the fear of the actual virus itself can, of course, be more um, more severe. I do want to get into that and also the social isolation aspect of it. But first, I want to talk about you know the economic hardships that a lot of families have faced. When I was doing some research, I saw a quote that said households with children have experienced significantly higher rates of economic hardships throughout the pandemic. How can those hardships affect access to necessities for children? As I was saying previously, you know, when when anybody loses their job, I mean, COVID took away every aspect of our life. It it affected everything and still is in, in, in many ways. I mean, of course, we've adapted, but so many people lost their jobs. And when they lost their jobs, they lost their income and with it often their health insurance. And, and that provided and, and created such insecurity for, for, for families. And when families are not just uh, an adult and when you're caring for individuals, obviously, you know, they're the ones um, that um, are going to suffer also. So children were the, the unfortunate, you know, um, you know, recipients of, of, of negative fallout due to the financial hardships of, of, you know, their caregivers. And that, that did result in them, them missing out on, on many things that had to do with simply from food to going to doctors, receiving medications, access to routine health care, dental care. I, I had read somewhere that, um, you know, people couldn't even get normal, you know, dental hygiene appointments. So it, it was really, really disruptive. So when you look at this collectively, when you look at all of the different aspects of, of our health, you know, um, the psychological things that kids look forward to, which is socialization, playtime, support from your family, your parents, guidance, that's compromised and taken away. Then on top, the basic survival aspects, food, shelter, you know, nutrition, um, you know, healthcare, um, yeah, all of that, uh, you know, people, especially in, in lower socioeconomic classes and people who lost their jobs, um, that, that confounding variables together are compounding variables together. You're going to see a, a, a more tragic mental health and physical health fallout from this. And, and a lot of this is going to unfortunately be to be determined um, once all the data is, is collected on this. And I, I, I hate to see um, what those results are going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a big part of it. And also, like you mentioned earlier, you know, that fear can be made worse, you know, fear of the illness itself, if they have people around them getting sick. I read that over 43,000 children are estimated to have lost a parent due to COVID. How can experiencing the loss of a parent at such a young age affect a child's mental health? So, you know, abandonment, and secure abandonment, secure attachments are, are a hallmark thing that, and a benchmark thing that we need to achieve for proper um, development, social relatedness and growth um, for us as we become adults. So the, the devastation that can occur depending on the child's age, the child's resiliency, the other supportive uh, figures that they have in their, um, in their, in their lives can all be and all need to be factored in on, on what the result can be. Um, you know, losing a parent at any age is, is, is 
it's it's super difficult. It, it's it's tragic, and I, I know that as human beings, we're going to lose people as we as we go along in our in the course of life. But uh, you know, unexpected loss. You know, these are things. COVID nineteen was not something that anybody at this time living has really ever experienced for the most part, and so children had a difficult time and are having a difficult time anticipating that. I think we as experts and healthcare professionals knew that there was going to be some fallout to this and we were going to have to uh, deal with you know the negative mental health on adults and um, children that the pandemic was going to have. But what that tally is or how that really is going to play out is, is again, yet to be determined. Um, losing a parent when you're a child, again, it can really affect you in many ways as it relates to um, your attachment for, for, for up with other people. And again, it, it could be perceived as an abandonment. And, um, and depending on the cognitive level of that child, um, it can have tremendous enduring negative effects. And um, it's very sad. We see that often, though, especially in young children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you said, you know, a lot of the effects are still to be seen. You know, we're going to see a lot more research coming about that in the future. But based on what we already know right now, are some children more likely to develop mental health issues than others? Yeah, I mean, those kids that were already psychologically fragile, um, probably um, people who might have a pre-existing depression or anxiety or um, had, had difficulty coping or adapting in different ways. So anybody with a pre-existing mental health condition, uh, adding stress of the pandemic um, definitely can exacerbate those situations. And I do believe we're going to see so much more, even though people did not make those that did not have pre-existing depression, anxiety, um, develop it. But in addition, you know, those that don't have supportive role models or healthy, supportive um, caregivers, yeah, those people those children are going to be um, at increased risk for developing that because they're not going to know how to um, react to this. And again, it speaks to, you know, we mimic, we model what we see. So if we don't have healthy role models before us uh, or people who are dying or people who are sick or people who are addicted, uh, people who are catastrophizing, people who can't moderate the perception of COVID accurately um, or politicizing this whole thing, um, the, 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 those kids are going to be at increased risk for negative psychological outcomes. So um, a lot of it, again, I I hate to use the general word environment, but, you know, we are a product of uh, where we grow up and who we grow up with and what we're exposed to. So, um, you know, having healthy caregivers, healthy parents to get us through this, it's going to be more protective. Without that, those are the kids that are going to have um, an increased risk. Because, um, you know, how we cope with things, you know, the same two people can be exposed to lack of certain food or lack of certain health care or lack of certain socialization. But if the parents are there to help those children, guide them through these times and help them cope in healthy ways, those kids are going to have um, a, a better outcome. So if a child does have mental health issues, how is that going to affect them as an adult? Well, you know, it depends if they're getting treatment or not. You know, many of our um, childhood depressions, anxieties, traumas, um, 
other illnesses that we have, psychological illnesses that are present. Um, you know, we do have behavioral, cognitive behavioral um, therapies and, and, and medications uh, that are, uh, are, are FDA approved to treat, you know, and, and are indicated for mental health issues. The, the, the problem I see is if that was disrupted during the course of the pandemic. Obviously, telehealth being in place has served as a, uh, a vehicle medium to, to still communicate and get access to it. But uh, again, it, it, it seems the irony is, is those that um, are, are capable of getting access to all of this stuff are those that probably had, um, you know, less issues. Um, because it's, it's, it's the unfortunate part and the unfortunate reality that those who are struggling struggle um, more pervasively, more, more globally, and, and more comprehensively. So it is those people who are, you know, um, living in, in, in areas that might be, um, you know, not, not, not ecologically having the, um, you know, the resources that in itself don't have parents who may have jobs that don't have you know, the insurance don't have vehicles, don't have the means to get them through um, the obstacles that the pandemic caused. So they might already have more vulnerabilities by having presence of other mental health issues that go along or are more prevalent within such populations. And then when they get an insult, meaning something gets taken away, then whatever structure or support that was there is going to crumble. And, and that is the irony of this whole situation. So, um, you know, there are things that, of course, we've done to compensate. But um, if those could have been replaced and those could have been modified and those needs met, those kids are going to get through this better. But, um, you know, uh, it, it all depends if there was continuation or substitution of their, the therapies and modalities that kept them healthy in the first place. Let's talk more about those obstacles that have been put in place by the pandemic. Uh, one of those is the social isolation. Uh, some sources say that they saw an increase in fear of going out in public in children. Do you think that this is going to be irreversible for some children as they grow up? Well, the beauty about kids is kids are resilient, but I don't think we've put them through this type of test before. So, you know, yes, they're resilient. We can, the closer, but what, what we do know is that sooner we get kids back to normal um, behaviors and normal routines, the, the better and more protective or the outcomes are. So the longer we, uh, we allow somebody to live in or outside of what they consider normal or that structure without compensating or creative measures that somehow, um, recreate or at least simulate um, or substitute whatever was being deprived. Well, that's really what we want to, that's really how we can measure um, what's going to end up happening. So we have seen people substitute for this, right? When, when, when first the, the pandemic started and people were, um, you know, staying home from school, which is the biggest thing. I think with kids, the number one thing is taking away their socialization. Kids need other children. They need other people to to be around and so we did go back to we did have you know distance learning 
of virtual learning. And now, you know, many people went back to school um, in person when school resumed. And, and, and for the most part, I think um, we have gotten to a spot where people have um, understood that going back to school was, is, is super important. And we put provisions in place um, that allowed that socialization to take place. So that, that's, that I think is very, um, very productive here. Um, but again, I think if you use a simple formula that the, if you can get kids back to their normal routine, from a social perspective, a health perspective, a fitness perspective, you know, um, a mindfulness perspective, um, you know, you're going to have less fallout from this. And so, um, you know, any way that creates that um, normalcy, lack of a better word, is going to be uh, it's going to be better for that child. And I think we're trying it as a society um, as much as possible. Um, the unfortunate part is. Um, you know, the risk versus benefits, you know, those kids that have been um, stuck at home or might not have access to all these things, well, they're the ones that are going to have uh, fare worse in this situation. What can parents do to, you know, try to ease some of that anxiety and stress for their children? Well, definitely it's important to, you know, not catastrophize it ourselves. I mean, I think many parents, um, or many people, unfortunate part of this pandemic, it has been polarized. You know, there's people looking at it like it's nothing. And there are people who are looking at it like, oh my God, how are we gonna survive at all? Well, you know, life is about adjusting and adapting and reacting in healthy ways. That's the way that we do things in order to have the best outcomes. So parents, we need to ensure that our kids are socializing and are, we have to use graded levels of, you know, reintegration. But most parents have started doing that and have we done it either via virtual play dates or, you know, having a select group of people that they can vet and that they can talk to, that um, they know that they're not putting themselves in risky behavior so they can, you know, keep a few kids together that um, maybe aren't you know, at high risk of uh, contracting COVID. Um, at the same time, spending time with our children. You know, I think the pandemic has allowed for many parents to maybe um, look at their own lives and say, hey, how can I give back to my kids and be more emotional with them in terms of a supportive manner? And I think um, there was something that we've, we've read recently that um, talked about that. And, and we did mention that, you know, you know, families and parents um, got a, another opportunity to be close again here. And, and that that's good. And, and so we, we need to continue that positive, um, you know, emotional, psychological um, interaction with our children. But, um, you know, it's really keeping them away also from that negative constant grind, that news that could be on, keeping them away from being in front of social media where, you know, certain um, repetitive um, negative stimuli can be exposed to them. You know, it, it's really trying to create that proper balancing act and getting them physical, getting them outdoors. It's huge. It's a huge component to keeping kids mentally well. Uh, physical activity, um, obesity, unfortunately, and, and, and Poor nutrition for children is a problem here in the United States and in many other parts of the world. Um, 
So getting our kids physical, it, it's scientifically proven, uh, all of us who are capable, if we're physically active, it releases endorphins, it allows us to feel a certain sense of uh, wellness and health. And um, that needs to be um, maintained throughout this whole time. And, and again, it's, it's fall coming up, I mean, in terms of returning back to school. And um, hopefully, and we know that many school systems have put provisions in place that will allow kids to return back to um, a lot of the normal activities that they had lost, um, and, and especially were absent maybe during the summertime. So it's a collective effort um, in all of these things that we just talked about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was some great advice. Thank you for that. Um, another side of this, one of the realities of these mental health issues that are happening to kids you know, it increases the chance that someone is going to try to self-medicate with drugs and alcohol. What age do children or young adults typically start experimenting with drugs and alcohol? You know, uh, on average, you see it at 11, 12, 13, 14 years of, of age. You see it depending on where you are, what kind of surroundings you, you are in, um, how much parental control there may be. But when, when we see that... Um, you know, initial usage, it's often in the uh, preteen, teenage years, early adolescence that uh, experimentation may occur. Um, there are studies done uh, basically annually on the prevalence of what drugs are being used by what age group. And, um, you know, we do often see um, marijuana, cigarettes, alcohol, often being the, the first drugs that are, are being abused and experimented with, that doesn't necessarily mean that these kids are going to be uh, chronically using this over time. But um, we do see this. Adolescence is a time where we usually see kids experimenting with drugs. And, um, you know, depending on the education, the, the, the risk factors that might be around them, you may see the progression into uh, further substance abuse and potential addiction. But... Um, yeah, the young, younger uh, you start, the worse the outcome is, unfortunately. And um, we do see that, you know, one of the bigger risk factors for adult addiction is the onset of when you first started using. So, um, yeah, these, these younger people using is um, 11, 12, 13, 14. We, we see that rate. Okay. And the younger that they start using, the more likely they are to continue usage? Yeah, not, not just continue always, but that does increase the risk of potential um, other substance use and potential addiction. So it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to continue using that specific substance, but we do see the association with onset of substance use and often the development of addiction as a whole. And... Um, further experimentation with other drugs and, okay. um, and, and it is because our brain is still developing there. So imagine, and, and actually this allows me to segue a little bit into that executing functioning and that continual evolution of the development of the brain. If we start introducing drugs or alcohol at a time where our brain receptors are still developing, you know, the adaptation and the need then the, the reward, the whole definition of addiction, and how our brain will continue to adapt to either require or need it and tolerate it and or crave it um well that risk is enhanced 
So you can see why the earlier somebody uses, the, 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 the higher the risk is there. What kind of signs should parents look out for that their child, you know, is abusing drugs or struggling with mental health issues and may need professional intervention? You know, the most overt one is when, when you see behavioral changes. You know, a lot of times, you know, it's hard to tease out if it's if it's secondary to a substance of abuse, sometimes from from a primary mental health condition like depression, because somebody getting irritable could get irritable coming off of smoking marijuana or they can get irritable because they're feeling sad or depressed or angry about something. So, you know, the, so the homework thing is, of course, if you see some behavioral change, a pattern that starts to, to change, you, you should be concerned, especially if it's a negative pattern. You know, if kids' clothing starts to change, their, their hygiene starts to change, they start losing interest in things that they um, obviously were engaged in before, healthy interests. If they start to become persistently or sad, or articulating that they're feeling depressed or angry, or they tell you that they cannot control their feelings, if you see grades declining, you know, many of these are are, are you know things that we see as kids grow up. But then it's the degree and the pervasiveness that we need to watch out for. That if it's not congruent with something that's transient or reacting to a certain um, stimuli that might seem, you know, proportionate, you need, you need to be watching out that something else is going on, drugs, alcohol, or maybe some developing uh, mental health condition. All right, Dr. Bot, thank you for sharing your expertise with us today. For anyone listening who wants to learn more about mental health and addiction, we have a lot of great information on addictioncenter.com, as well as more podcast episodes. And thank you for listening to this episode of Straight Talk with the Doc.